Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Dr. Justin Perrault, Director of Research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, a nonprofit sea turtle research, rehabilitation, education, and conservation center located in Juneau, Florida. A busy place with a broad portfolio, Loggerhead typically treats upwards of 100 sick or injured sea turtles and about 1,000 hatchlings each year. Meanwhile, Loggerhead conducts scientific research, that's Dr. Perrault's uh, bailiwick, of course, and seeks to educate the public about sea turtles particularly threatened and endangered ones. Other elements of the facility include an animal hospital where a live turtle cam allows you to observe one of the turtle patients on your computer or other device, as well as a research lab exhibits and aquariums. We'll likely discuss how the earliest period of the COVID-19 lockdown, coming as it did during a nesting season last year, may have served as a boon to the turtles and that few people were out on the beaches, meaning fewer nests were disturbed. We'll cover this, sea turtles, and certainly some other facets of Loggerhead Marine Life Center. When I speak with Dr. Justin, Peralt in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in the program, I'll speak with Karen Windsor, Executive Director of Foster Parrots, a Rhode Island bird sanctuary that last week experienced a major fire roaring through a section where many of the birds were housed, killing 80 or more of them. Obviously, this was a devastating tragedy. I invited Karen on today's program to see how we might help her and her sanctuary colleagues rebuild and rebound. We'll speak with her a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's discuss various aspects of sea turtles with Dr. Peralt. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Justin Peralt on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Perrault. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Of course. I'm excited to be here. Cool. So in a moment or two, I want to discuss, of course, various aspects of Loggerhead Marine Life Center. Certainly a singular place. But first, let's talk a little bit about you. What exactly is the career path for a guy becoming director of research at Loggerhead? Give me a bit of a guided tour of how you got here. Oh, boy. Um, Yeah, so I, I grew up kind of landlocked in Memphis, Tennessee, but we always had a ton of animals, you know, cats, dogs. We always, we welcomed anything into our house. So I had a a passion for animals early on in my life. And, um, you know, then I think I saw a sea turtle in Mexico nesting when I was like 12 and then decided to go to school for marine biology and uh, procrastinated a little bit when applying to graduate school. I got into one graduate program that just happened to um, be a sea turtle specialist program. And that's that's how I got into sea turtles and um, did a little bit of my PhD work at at Loggerhead um, actually in 2000. 2007 and 2008 and, you know, did a couple career paths. Um, in between then and now and got a job offer about four or five years ago from LMC and I, you know, came back. So That's so, great. Yeah, yeah. So really, if I follow your story, it sounds like just as a largely landlocked guy in, in Memphis, Tennessee, but I guess it was on some sort of trip to Mexico where you, at 12, where you saw the sea turtle and it sounds like it made some sort of profound connection. Yeah, it was really interesting, you know, that, that it was a green turtle that we saw nesting and it was um, at a resort and unfortunately, you know, there was a lot of people around and the regulations there weren't weren't really strict at the time, and so the turtle ended up going back to the water without laying any eggs. And you know that 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 hits hard. It's sad to see that um, in these animals when they're just trying to do what what they want to do, but you know people um, often prevent 
against that. And so that, that had a, definitely had an impact on me. But it sounds like the way you tell the story, at least, like it was sort of serendipitous that, <laughs> that you become kind of a sea turtle guy in that you just had this encounter at the, at the place in Mexico. And then it sounds like when you're applying for grad school, you just sort of happen to end up at a place that that was a real specialty. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's exactly, that's really exactly what happened. It was just, you know, it seems like fate. You know, I, I always loved all marine animals. I, um, you know, they're all interesting to me and, and I never knew that sea turtles was going to be my path, but yeah, exactly. Serendipitous is the exact right word. It's just kind of all fallen into place. And what was the grad school that turned out to be a sea turtle specialty yeah. place? It was Florida Atlantic University down in Boca Raton. Okay, yeah, yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. So what excites you about sea turtles now? I mean, we had, we had the serendipitous thing, but obviously they took hold in you in some way, and you wouldn't have spent this time studying them and now working with them for the X amount of years since then if they didn't really excite you in one or more ways. What do you find exciting about sea turtles? Oh, man, you know, sea turtles, are they're just, just really, really interesting and neat animals. You know, people have this kind of, profound connection with them that's kind of unexplained you know they've got this cute little face and they're kind of slow and curious but i think my favorite thing about them is um that i always say is is their resiliency so these animals are you know undergoing immense pressure from you know human encroachment and and to their environment and things like that and they just seem to rebound and they seem to be able to combat all the elements and and you know we've got turtles that come in with really pretty horrible injuries or horrible conditions and they're still able to survive or they're still able to nest on the beach and I just think that that's so fascinating to have an animal that that has that resiliency that's really just able to persevere you know despite all the odds being against them. Yeah. Well, I want to come back and explore a little more depth uh, some of the things that do bring turtles uh, to Loggerhead Marine Life Center. But what have you found over the years of working there and just working with turtles that other people, you you say that they've kind of, they find them kind of cute and a cute face and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, some people, I think, including myself, just find them kind of magical. I mean, when they swim, they kind of look like they're flying, even though they couldn't be moving more slowly. But there's something really magical about that, I think. And, of course, they, I guess maybe depending on the turtle, but just generally they look kind of um, otherworldly in, in the most favorable way I could you know, use yeah. that term. And, of course, some might say they look a little bit prehistoric. So there's definitely uh, something really, I think, striking about sea turtles. And is that what you find that when people either visit uh, Loggerhead or just in your encounter out in the field? Is, what, are, what are the things that you hear from other people about what, what enchants them? I just think, you know, they're... they're they're kind of an interesting marine animal, you know, because reptiles in general are tied to the land for reproduction. So these animals are spending their entire lives for the most part in the ocean. And then they're making, you know, there's some animals that make transoceanic migrations from where they feed and where they nest. So there's animals, you know, the leatherback turtle and off of the coast of California forages in California and migrates, you know, tens of thousands of miles across the Pacific to nest in, you know, um, Papua New Guinea or something like that. So yeah. Just the, their ability to hone in and navigate and orient to where they're supposed to go with, you know, no phone or GPS unit like we have is <laughs> truly remarkable. Now that you mentioned, I've rarely seen a sea turtle holding a smartphone. Yeah. So that, I guess that's true. Yeah. So they, they have theirs inside their uh, 
their cool brain, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Yep, so. Absolutely. And uh, let me just also let folks know who might just be tuning in. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you did just tune in, my guest is Dr. Justin Parolt, Director of Research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center, a nonprofit sea turtle research, rehabilitation, education, and conservation center located in Juneau, Florida. If you'd like to ask Dr. Parolt a question about sea turtles or offer a comment about them, please call 813-239-9663. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. I guess if someone is interested at all in, in sea turtles, it stands to reason kind of that, that they would also then be interested in Loggerhead Marine Life Center. Talk a little bit about the history and evolution of Loggerhead. Yeah, so we started in the late 70s um, with a woman named Eleanor Fletcher. She was um, nicknamed the Turtle Lady. She was an educator and she just had such a passion for these animals. Um, and she was the first woman in the state of Florida to be awarded a a marine turtle permit to be able to conduct work on these animals. And so she kind of started this with the goal of education in mind. And and, um, back then we we were just a little tiny trailer in Juneau Beach that, you know, housed a few turtles at a time. And since then it's grown into what it is now. So we had um, a major expansion back in 2007 where we revamped the hospital. We added a ton of hospital beds. We improved, you know, the laboratory and the educational facilities. And now we're undergoing a a third expansion, you know, a a really large capital campaign to, again, double our tank space, double our square footage, improve and increase the number of dedicated classrooms, you know, have a state-of-the-art research laboratory and, and all the work. So that's that's kind of the history in a nutshell. Well, I was going to say, and it already uh, really hit this point, that places like Loggerhead usually, uh, in my experience, evolve from very humble beginnings. And it sounds like that's exactly the case with Eleanor Fletcher and it sounds like a little kind of trailer and just modest digs. But uh, it sounds like it really obviously has evolved, say now even in the midst of yet another a significant expansion. So I guess that is that a measure of how much just general interest there is either in that area in sea turtles or just that there's other parts of your mission including the the research that you oversee, that is just so active and often broadening given the resources that that's kind of what's pushed the now third expansion, as you say? Yeah, I think think so. We have an incredibly special team that works with us. We work very closely together and, you know, that we... We drive our mission forward and we've got, you know, leaders in the field and in all of our different areas. And yeah, I, well, you know, what one thing that's kind of really neat about Loggerhead is we're free to the public. We have no admission costs or anything like that we, because we believe that there should be no financial barriers to learning about ocean conservation. So anybody can come in, you know, at, at any time of the of the week and, and learn about these turtles. And I think, you know, we've got a fabulous marketing team and just, uh, you know, we do some really cool research. Our, our hospital staff is unbelievable and, and X, Y, and Z. I could go on and on, but I think just the people that work there are so passionate and, and we're able to really get our, our mission out there to, you know, the general public. And that's kind of what's driven our, our popularity and expansion. Yeah, well, I've been lucky enough to, to go there a few times over the years. And, and in fact, there was a question I was going to ask in the wake of this current expansion now, just because Obviously, those kinds of things take a considerable amount of money and resources to to expand each time and and to have kind of -of state-of-the-art facilities and tanks and aquariums and and the hospital, et cetera. So I was going to ask, just because I, I was always struck from visiting there, 
that they obviously, when you're there, you're inclined or they certainly suggest maybe you consider making a donation. But the fact that it's not required and that it's, you know, essentially what we might call unticketed, I thought was always kind of really cool and impressive, partly for the reasons you mentioned, just that a kid can come in, anybody can come in and have this great exposure to all this um, turtles that you guys are helping uh, get back, uh, nurse back to health and put back in the water if, you know, whenever their time is right, or just exhibits and other things, aquariums. So, yeah, so I guess the question I was going to ask, but it sounds like you've already addressed it in a way, is that whether that policy would still remain in force once the, the current expansion is done. Yeah, absolutely. We have no plans to change that. That is a, a major facet of our mission, and, and, you know, it's been that way since the beginning. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we have no plans on changing that. Yeah. So it sounds like in the uh, Eleanor Fletcher days that there was probably, a, maybe not equal, but a certain emphasis on uh, rehabbing and, and helping sick and injured turtles, and definitely an emphasis even then on education. Over time, it's widened out to what all are the services or functions that you would say that Loggerhead offers at this point yeah so you know we've, we've touched on it briefly but you know like you said our our, our re- rehab hospital you know we have um, some of the best vets in the world that literally wrote the book on sea turtle rehabilitation and medicine so they're treating hundreds of patients every year and often you know thousands of hatchlings we've got our our education team that reaches over 70,000 um, students every year and a number of those are title one students that you know, we again just you know reduced fees for or no fees at all for for educational opportunities. Um, our conservation team is is absolutely wonderful. They just got back from Haiti, trying to do some sea turtle conservation work there. We manage a number of different peers around the U.S. and around the globe to teach about you know fishing line recycling and what to do if you accidentally hook a turtle and things like that. They're doing beach cleanups, and then you know my specialty is our research laboratory where we're monitoring um, the most dense nested loggerhead sea turtle beach in the western hemisphere so last year um, with all of our species combined on our nine and a half miles we we documented over 17,000 sea turtle nests on our on our local beach oh my so, goodness you know, we're, we're very busy yeah <laughs> and that makes me wonder back in when eleanor fletcher was just kind of getting this thing launched really in whatever way she could was it dictated even then by juno being so active with nests and hatchlings no you know the the nest numbers have kind of fluctuated and and our our standardized nest counts didn't really start until the 90s okay kind of out there i think opportunistically mostly kind of looking for this and she noticed you know there was significant sea turtle activity in the area and so that's kind of i think where all of this started so there's you know we have data sheets from back in the 70s from from mrs fletcher where she was you know looking at nests and things like that but we didn't have a lot of these standardized activities that we do now until a little bit later right so it sounds like in some ways while she noticed there was turtle activity it sounds like it was almost coincidental to some degree that it's later turned out to be such a uh a flourishing area for yeah. for nests and, and hatchlings yeah absolutely that yeah that uh, seems to be what happened it's, you know we, we just got we're just in a really special area for turtles you know florida is one of the most important nesting grounds in the world for for some of these species and you know um juno just happens to be one of those areas yeah so tell me a little bit more about your specific research what what is it that you're looking at and trying to determine um with your research efforts there yeah we do a, a bunch of different things so like i said we've, we've 
we've had standardized nest counts since, since the 90s, um, and, you know, our nest numbers in recent years are, are increasing for a number of these species. So we're out there every morning documenting every single sea turtle activity on the beach every day from March 1st through October 31st. We're, you know, taking GPS coordinates, marking some. We don't mark all the nests because, you know, if there's 17,000 nests, there's no room for tourists with all the stakes on the beach. So um, we're out there marking those, monitoring them daily, digging them up and looking for reproductive success. And then we're also out there at night doing a lot of tagging efforts of these animals. So we're out there encountering the animals, putting tags on, taking blood samples and skin samples for a number of different projects. So some of the stuff that we look at particularly is a lot of animal health research, making sure that the animals in our area are healthy. We look at um, contaminants in these animals. We do satellite tagging projects to see where these animals go and how many nests they're laying in a single season. Um, we've got, you know, projects on beach armoring and how that impacts sea turtles. So we, uh, genetics projects, all different kinds of things, you know, that, that we, we collaborate with, with individuals all over the world on. And so, you know, there's, there's really no shortage of, of projects yeah. in the area when you've got that many animals. So. For sure. And what does beach armoring refer to? Yeah, so beach armoring is something like um, seawalls. Oh, okay. We're, we're pretty lucky on our beach. We only have one small seawall that's protecting um, kind of a timeshare area, but there's other alternatives uh, alternatives to seawalls known as um, like geocores that are basically bags of sand that are buried under the dune and then planted on top with sand and native vegetation. And that is a more natural way to armor the beach. And we're finding that those structures are having very minimal impacts to sea turtles versus the seawall that causes erosion and really prevents nesting. So that's kind of um, one of our main areas of research now is, is looking into those structures and alternatives to seawalls. And uh, when you mentioned some of the other elements that constitute some of your research uh, each year, when you mentioned contaminants, does that mean like plastics and other stuff the turtles might be uh, ingesting in one way or another? Yeah, so we look at a lot of different things like heavy metals, like something like mercury, you know, we look at in the animals. Um, our hospital does a lot of, my, like, you know, the, the microplastic word is, is bouncing around a lot right now. So 100% of our sea turtle patients that come into our hospital have ingested plastic. Mm. Um, so we're looking at so our research, our rehab team is looking at um, those those actual hard pieces of plastic that the turtles ingest, and then we on the research side are looking at the contaminants that are leached from those plastics. Like everybody's heard of BPA, yeah, um, you know BPA, and a lot of there's something other else called phthalates that are used um, to stabilize plastics and things like that. So we're finding those in the, we're finding those contaminants in the animals as well. So when you say that 100 percent of the turtles have ingested some plastic which uh, is a sad and staggering percentage. Um, how much of that 100% is they're arriving there because they've ingested plastic and they're they're ill as a result? That we, we don't know yet. So, okay. Um, we, you know, a lot, the, 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 you know, if a turtle, if a large turtle ingests a, a small piece of plastic, you know, that's, that's not necessarily going to be massively detrimental to the animal. But what we're finding is that in these small, what we call post-hatchling turtles that are just a few inches, maybe five inches long or so. Yeah. Um, those are the ones that we're most worried about because when, you know, when they're ingesting large pieces of plastic, they're not getting any nutrients. And also those pieces of plastic can cause obstruction of the gut, preventing food from passing and they can also perforate the gut, um, which would obviously be detrimental to the animal. So we don't actually 
know if they're stranding as a result of the plastic. It's, it's more likely that they're getting blown in from, you know, significant wind and wave action. But uh, obviously ingesting plastic isn't good. And, and we're, we're, we're really, you know, starting to scratch the surface of, of how these plastics are, are impacting survival. Yeah. Well, again, it sounds like it's early in that research. But the fact that you've already established that 100 percent of the turtles that do arrive there have had at least some plastic in their system. Again, that's uh, that's distressing, to say the least. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we and we have it's one of our major educational displays is, you know, some of these animals that do die in captivity. We we we, you know, necropsy them or dissect them and take out the stomach contents. And some of these animals had ingested thousands of different types of plastic. So it, it's, it's quite extensive. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get one of our callers uh, involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Parole. Yes. Thank you very much for taking care of these poor animals once they've been injured. My question is, and it's kind of like what happens with Clearwater Marine Aquarium, they won't do any political lobbying of any kind or even public education to fight back against all of the different things that threaten marine species, jet skis, boats, population growth, beach development, dogs on the beach, e-bikes on the beach, just the general way the beaches are handled, lighting on the beach, ocean pollution, and fishing. All of them are killing marine mammals and turtles, etc., and killing swimmers. So would you guys ever consider to just go out and start to fight against all of the different things that are causing you to have to have animals to deal with in the first place that have been injured? buy all these different things? Yeah, we, we uh, you know, it's a good question, and we do try to stay out of the political realm, um, just because we have to be very careful about what we say in the public. However, um, we let our, our research findings be our noise, so we do publish all of our, our you know, the, 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 the plastic um, findings have been published in scientific journals. We're working on a number of papers on boat strike and animal health and, and all of these things like that that are impacting these animals, and so what those those manuscripts and those scientific research findings are supposed to do is inform policy. So we we submit all of those manuscripts and all of our findings every single year to Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, who who really truly makes the rules regarding these animals. So they are you know they are supposed to be using our research and our findings to make informed decisions about these animals to hope to reduce those threats. Yeah, I hope so too. And I'll just leave off with this: like it, um, on some of the beaches, especially North. Clearwater Beach, where the marine aquarium struggles valiantly to sequester the nesting. I see people's unleashed dogs going and digging up the nests. I see people's children fooling with the nest. I see boaters uh, in jet skiers anchoring and fooling with the nest. Call the police, call the sheriffs. Absolutely no enforcement, no concern. They, you know, what are you, a tree hugger? One of them said to me, I hope you guys will push your research out into the public sphere and, um, and get somebody to act as an advocacy organization for your research. Yeah, I appreciate your comments. We, Thank you we for definitely you do that. Do. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. And we, you know, we do that. Like I said, we have a fabulous marketing team that, that really pushes out all our findings out there, you know, and we're doing our, our part on our end. And, you know, if you do see people messing with sea turtle nests, it's better to call Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission because they're the ones that will respond because that is um, highly illegal to, to mess with any, any sea turtle in any way without a permit. Yeah, it sounds like it's a, a, a tricky line for you guys to navigate because you obviously generated some really important uh, and, and, again, sometimes distressing research.
research, but it sounds like you, you don't want to cross into the line of lobbying and direct advocacy yourself, but other, actually provide information, sort of fuel, if you will, for those who would be inclined to lobby or advocate. Yeah, absolutely. And when you say you have to be, sort of be careful about that, is that just because that puts your nonprofit status and or uh, potential funding in jeopardy? Well, not necessarily. It's just, you know, we're not a, we're not a lawmaking organization and, um, you know, we, we follow the rules and we, we try to get the word out there as best as we can. And so we just, you know, we, we get asked a lot to get involved in things like this and we do have to just take a step back just to be, to be careful because that, that is not a part of our, you know, our mission or our goals is, is, is the lawmaking you know, as of now. We're, we're hoping to get maybe involved in a little bit of policy with some changes that are going on in the center. Um, coming up, but you know, for now, it's it's our our research and our rehab efforts that are really driving our our um, our opinion. Gotcha. I have another question I want to get to in just one sec. That's kind of related, but I want to first make a, just a quick announcement for uh, our listeners who might be out and about. The Clearwater Police Department says avoid westbound lanes of the Courtney Campbell Causeway on the far west end of the causeway. We are on the scene along with the Clearwater Fire of multi-vehicle crash with road blockage. So. One thing that our caller mentioned that uh, I know you deal with is nests and how they can be protected or people who ignore, I guess, the warnings to leave them untouched. One of the things that struck me that I thought I would ask you about, too, is that as much as we're all... I think it's safe to say pretty frustrated and exhausted by COVID-19 and all its limitations. It has brought some pluses, like during the beginning of lockdown a year ago or thereabouts, I'm guessing at least fewer people were out about on the beaches. So I'm guessing therefore fewer turtle nests were disturbed as a result. Is that? Yeah, so yeah, so we actually, you know, the beaches were closed for about two months, um, and we were able to kind of conduct a study on um, loggerhead turtles because that's that's the only species that was really nesting in high enough densities for us to to have any enough data on. But yeah. what we found was um, during the closure period, we had a significantly reduced false crawl rate or an increased nesting success rate. So a false crawl is when a turtle comes up on the beach but turns around without laying a clutch of eggs, and that's very common in turtles. Um, they do that. They're very picky they're kind of like you know the goldilocks it's not you know quite right or quite quite too Mm. the sand's not quite too right so um it's very common for them to false crawl but what we found was that there was a a a 12 percent increase in nesting success during the covid closure period that compared to after the beaches reopened so Mm. you know turtles were we believe able to nest more undisturbed as a result of the beach closures because you know juno beach is public it's open to the public 24 7 so there's people out there all the time at all hours of the night doing you know whatever people do at 2 a.m on the beach but yeah we you know can we kind of attributed that possibly to the decline in people on the beach allowing these animals to nest undisturbed naturally yeah and overall like now that we're sort of at the early part of the next nesting season from when uh, those results were found mm-hmm. just generally dr pearl do you find that people are uh, more sort of conscientious about nests and about disturbing them and about introducing too much light at night. Just generally have people slowly but surely, let's hope, understood what's at stake with those nests and why it's just so important. And, and as our call alluded to, even making sure that people's dogs and kids and whoever don't just scoot off and disrupt them, disturb them. Yeah, we, um, we're we lucky in Juneau. You know, we're one of the darkest beaches in the state and we have a very vigilant population locally that really cares and responds 
respect about the sea turtles. So locally on our beaches, the residents really know not to use lights. They know to leave the turtle nest undisturbed. You know, they if they're on the beach at night, they know to keep their distance from the turtles, clean up their garbage and things like that. It's oftentimes, you know, the, the tourists that aren't from here that aren't really familiar with sea turtles and the rules and regulations that, that come along with them that I don't want to say that they're the they're not a problem, but it's just, you know, there's a lot of people that are just aren't generally educated about sea turtles. And, yeah. and, you know, that's okay. But, you know, if we're out there and we see somebody, you know, messing with a turtle or something like that, we, we just, you know, kind of kindly inform them and educate them on, on what's going on. And, you know, most people, you know, say 99% of people are, are pretty, pretty, have a pretty positive response. So, you know, just again, with our education team and um, just really getting the word out there to as many people as they can. But, we, you know, we're, we're really lucky here in Juneau, but there's other parts of the state that are a, a little bit trickier to deal with, you know, down in Fort Lauderdale and Miami, the beaches are very bright and things like yeah. that. And there's, you know, much more disorientation where the turtles are crawling in the wrong direction as a, as a result of the light and things like that. Yeah. So tricky cheese. And again, yeah. as I recall, at least there's typically quite a few signs that make it clear that there's turtles nesting there and please don't bother them. And I think it might even make reference to keeping the light down to a minimum. But then I was just thinking that when you mentioned that you know, there's some 17,000 nests in this last go round, it's like, geez, hard to keep an eye on them all and hope that people will not even just inadvertently with that many bump into one or disturb one. Yeah, we, um, you know, we kind of discourage the use of umbrellas and digging holes on the beach as well, just because, because we do have so many nests on our beaches, you know, we only mark about 10% of those nests, like I said before, because we just can't mark everything. And sure. chances are, if you're sitting on the beach somewhere, you know, we have a, 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 our, our nest numbers equate to about a nest every three feet. So chances are, if you're somewhere on the beach on Juneau during peak season in like July, um, you're on top of a turtle nest. So always be wary if you're digging a hole or if your dog's digging in the sand or if you're putting an umbrella down there, you know, you could you could potentially uh, accidentally come across a sea turtle nest or puncture a sea turtle nest. So, you know, it's really important to just be aware of that. Yeah, that's a really good point about families or big groups that might go with those umbrellas and just think, hey, this is how we set up the umbrellas, but never imagining that it could have that kind of impact on sea yeah. turtles nest. So that's a very good point to make. Yeah. So Loggerhead has a veterinary hospital, as I think I mentioned at the outset of the show, and I think you mentioned it as well, right there on campus. And it appears a, a big portion of the work done there is caring for injured and ill sea turtles who arrive there. What ailments or wounds are most commonly responsible for bringing the turtles in for care there? Um, we have a, a number of conditions. One of our most common condition is, is called chronic debilitation. So we, we don't really know what causes that disease. It, it may just be a lack of food in the environment. It may be a parasite, but essentially it's a wasting disease. So these animals are coming in starving to death. They're very thin. They're emaciated. Mm. Um, but our, our, like I said, our veterinary team is absolutely incredible. And, and our lead veterinarian, Dr. Charlie Manier, um, kind of, you know, he, there's we don't know a lot about reptile medicine and he kind of developed this treatment from human medicine that has improved the survival rate of that condition from 10 to 20 percent to 80 to 90 percent so wow um, it's something known as parenteral nutrition that's given to like neonates that you know that are born premature and things like that so yeah the, the food directly in the bloodstream so that's one um one condition we often see a lot of unintentional boat strikes on these animals those are the hardest to treat our survival rate of those animals is only about 10 to 20 percent oh. um unfortunately when those wounds heal oftentimes pockets of air um, get trapped in the animal causing buoyancy disorders um you know we we see turtles that are entangled in fishing line and oftentimes have ingested the fishing line 
or a fishing hook as well. Um, you know, all, all different kinds of stuff. But those are kind of our those of our 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 main conditions. You know, there's another disease that's common in sea turtles. It's a it's a cancerous disease with a very long name. It's known as fibropapillomatosis. We're not currently a hospital that treats that cancerous disease, but once we have our expansion, um, we will be able to treat. Uh, we will be able to take patients with that condition as well. Wow. And beyond the situation we described, the turtles that have suffered unfortunately boat strikes, and as part of their healing, then there's buoyancy issues. Aren't there kind of maybe curiously to some who haven't been exposed to it that much, aren't there a number of other buoyancy issues in sea turtles where either they can't Uh float or they float too much, they float where they don't want to? I mean, there seems like there's various aspects of this. Oh, yeah. It's not just caused by boats. So we've got, you know, these buoyancy disorders can be caused by a number of different conditions. Oftentimes, if a turtle has some kind of lung infection, it can create a lot of extra gas in the the lung and the turtle will float as a result of that. Um, Sometimes the turtle is literally just gassy in the intestine and we have to go in and and remove some of the air from the intestine that might also be caused by an infection. So we we call that bubble butt syndrome because the, the butt is kind of floating at the top of the surface. Um, so yeah, a, a number of infections c- can cause that. And then you'll also get, you know, something called cold stunning. When the water drops below 50 degrees very rapidly, the turtles aren't really able to get out and the animals kind of just uh, undergo a physiological response where they float at the surface mm. um, as a result of that cold water. And so there's, a, there's you know, like, like I said, the, the boats are not the only reason these animals can float. It can be infection or it can be some other kind of underlying condition. Yeah. And I guess we should note if I, I think I might have earlier, I can't remember if I did or just only meant to, but in the hospital, there is the uh, live turtle cam where you can kind of keep an eye on one of the patients at any given time through your computer or device. So what patient's in there now, uh, Doctor? Oh, let me, let me look. You got, you, you stumped me. On okay. Sorry. It, it doesn't really matter. I just, uh, I have periodically gone there and it's, it's just kind of a turtle hanging. There's not a whole lot to see, but it is kind of cool in a way just to sort of kind of calming in a way, really. Just to uh, the turtle is little T. So he is a, not little at all. He's a big, uh, he's a big male that, um, I believe just came in with chronic debilitation. So he's about 180 pounds. Um, yeah, he is an adult male. He was found off of uh, Fort Pierce with yeah with chronic debilitation. So mm. he's currently floating a little bit um, with some conditions. But um, you know, like I said, our, our our rehab team really knows what to do and how to treat him. So I have every hope that he'll be fine. Yeah. And are there certain illnesses that are particular to certain species of turtles? Yeah. So like I mentioned before, the the fibropapillomatosis or FP we call it for short. Just yeah. The mouthful is is it's found in all seven sea turtles species, but it's most common in, in the green turtle. So there's some areas of Florida where the prevalence rate is, is upwards of 70% or more. Um, we see chronic debilitation most commonly in our in our loggerheads, but that there may be some evidence to suggest that that's subsiding, but we're not really we're not really sure on that yet. So yeah, there are, you know, uh, just, just depending on turtles' behavior and life stage class, you may have different um, different animals or different species that are more susceptible to certain conditions than others. Yeah. And I know you often are out late at night. You mentioned that, I think, uh, in this conversation, checking on nests or conducting research. Uh-huh. Uh, if you were out late last night, what did you see or do uh, last night in particular? <laughs> last night, was I was out until about 3 a.m. Um, and we saw nothing. It was... <laughs> 
Oh, okay, really, just... Yeah, it was a really boring night. We didn't have any nests during our patrol. But the night before, um, we did see four different leatherback sea turtles on the beach. We had um, a number, a, a lot of really cool animals. We had one that actually nested last year and came back again this year, which is um, pretty rare for a sea turtle. They normally take a couple years off before they return to the nesting beach. And then we also had another animal that was originally tagged back in 2003, so almost a 20-year nesting history with that animal. So, wow. you know, it, it's still early in the season, so these nights with zero nests are, are going to be a little bit common right now. But, yeah. uh, but the night before, yeah, we had quite a busy night, and it was pretty exciting. And when it is season like this, do you go out every single night? Um, we are now, yeah. For the the leatherback project has been going on since 2001, and so we are continuing that. So we have a you know a, now our 21st year of that project we're going on into, and so we're out um, seven nights a week for monitoring the leatherback turtles until about mid to the end of June. And um, you know pretty soon here we're also going to be starting getting starting to get loggerhead turtles. So we'll we'll start applying some satellite tags to to those loggerheads heads early in early in the season for those early nesting loggerhead turtles wow. so it's about to ramp up here really quickly yeah it sounds sounds busy and getting busier so we're sort of nearing the end of our time dr Bro, but let me uh say that in a weird coincidence yesterday while thinking about the conversation we'd be having this morning i received a press release about multiple organizations suing really to prevent practice in which sea turtles can get caught in uh, shrimping nets mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if you saw that but i guess in some ways it's partly tied to trying to reverse a trump administration rule there's these turtle excluder devices yep. or teds can can you just speak to that just for a moment just because i thought it was such an interesting yeah yeah so um turtle excluder devices are something that were enacted a couple decades ago in, in order to help save turtles that get caught in trawls and, and shrimping nets. So what they are is it's essentially you've got a really long net that drags across the bottom of the ocean and they're they're very detrimental for, for the marine environment, particularly like coral reefs and stuff like that because they can drag along the bottom of the ocean and really destroy that habitat. But, um, you know, when the turtle excluder devices were enacted, what it is is you've got this big long net and then at the end of the net there's a grate. And so before these were enacted, the turtles would get caught in the net and the trawl would last long enough and, you know, reptiles are, have to breathe air so they have to come to the surface so the turtles would drown in the net. So with the implementation of the turtle excluder devices, the, the turtle essentially hits the grate and then there's an escape catch on either side of the turtle excluder device that the animal is able to escape from. And there was there's really no reason to not use them because the, you know, the fisheries are reporting that there was no redu real reduction in their catch as a result of these devices. So the, you know, it's a win-win it's a because the fishermen are, it's a, it's a great, you know, conservation effort because you're still able to, you know, aid the human population in giving them food. And then you're also able to, you know, get the turtles out of the net, um, safely so that they don't drown. So that's kind of the, the basics of turtle excluder devices. And those devices are actually attributed to really saving and improving these conservation efforts of these animals decades ago. You know, we're starting to see population numbers start to rebound in some of these areas. And, and a lot of that is attributed to these turtle excluder devices. So they are very important. Gotcha. All right. My final question, Dr. Perot, is tell me one fact about sea turtles that most of us would find really surprising. Well, um, we've got, you know, turtle, a lot of people don't know that turtles nest more than one time in a in a season so 
I think the record for the most number of nests in a in a season is laid by a leatherback turtle with 14 nests. So this this animal came back 14 different times to lay 14 different eggs in one season. In one season. Oh my goodness! That's a that's a record. But yeah, you know, kind of average is for some of these species is is four to six or maybe eight to ten if you're a leatherback. You know, leatherbacks have the the largest reproductive output of any reptile. So um, you know, they they uh, they do quite a bit. They're they're busy. Laying <laughs> yeah, wow. That's well that's that's definitely a whopper to finish on, so that's perfect. Yeah, so yeah. so thanks very much. We've been speaking with Dr. Justin Perold. He's uh director of research at Loggerhead Marine Life Center. The website is marinelife.org and there's all kinds of great information and resources and of course the uh now infamous live turtle cam and all kinds of other great stuff. So you can visit that website and uh, thank you so much, Dr. Perold, for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. Oh, of course. I had a blast. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. In a moment, we'll speak with Karen Windsor of Foster Parrots, the Rhode Island bird sanctuary that was devastated by a fire last week that killed more than 80 resident birds. My chief aim in speaking with her is to determine ways we might help the sanctuary as it seeks to recover from this horrible tragedy. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a longtime fave of ours and very possibly yours, Paula Poundstone. She's been a guest on Talking Animals a few times, at least partly discussing the enormous number of cats she lives with. Fittingly, then, here's a cat piece called Cats Puff Up from Paula Poundstone in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. You know what I can't figure out? All my cats are indoor cats, and some of them are out-and-out fat and lazy cats. And uh, I don't know why they puff up when they fight with each other. You know, I know, you know, they say, oh, cats puff up so they look bigger to their adversaries. But first of all, my cats all know each other. You know what I mean? (laughs) They don't really believe for a moment that one of them got really big. I mean, cats know about puffing up. That, did, they, did they think it was a trick only they knew? And the other cat actually just uh, got bigger in that moment? That doesn't make any sense. And it seems to me it must take a lot of energy to puff up. You, you know, I, I, would, I, would think, I would think that they would just have a meeting and one day my head fat lazy cat would just turn to the others and say, look it, from now on, let's nobody puff up. We already know about puffing up. We're not fooling anybody. If you puff up and I puff up, we're the same anyways. Tell you what, once a day I'm gonna grab each of you with my front paws and kick at you with my back paws and you just take it. I tell you what, cats are no help whatsoever in terms of security, you know. Uh, you know, cats get the exact same look on their face for a big giant moth as they do for an axe murderer. <laughs> they go, great, I'm either gonna get a hole in my head or my sweater. That was Paul Poundstone in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Cats Puff Up, taken from her album I Heart Jokes. Paula tells them in Maine. Now it's time to speak with Karen Windsor, Executive Director of Foster Parrots in Rhode Island, where they're contending with a horrific fire last week that claimed the lives of 80 or more birds that were living at the sanctuary. This is Karen Windsor on Talking Animals on WM. Good morning, Karen. 
Uh, good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Elves, and I'm so very sorry about this unspeakable tragedy. And my uh, heartfelt condolences to you and your uh, and your colleagues. It just uh, it just must be just so so painful. Yes, thank you. We we appreciate it. Thank you. So in a moment, maybe we'll hear a bit more about the. Uh, you know, the the fire. But first, maybe you could just provide an overview of Foster Parrots and what its uh, mission is. Well, Foster Parrots has um, been, a, I guess, a big part of the um, avian welfare community for 25, maybe almost 30 years. And, um, you know, we... We rescue unwanted parrots. Um, we do not believe that parrots should be in captivity. They do not belong in cages. Um, they're extremely difficult to care for in a domestic, you know, um, home environment. And um, they just, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a big um, unwanted um, parrot crisis um, that I don't think is, is adequately recognized in the country, but um, yet there it is. So uh, we rescue parrots, um, but our facility um it, you know was used as a as a resource um for um the veterinary community for universities we're out in the community really trying to push you know the message that you know wildlife belongs in the wild um, wildlife should not be captive and um and parrots are um one of the uh, maybe the most widely traded wild animal um on the planet so yeah, and also I don't know if this figures into what extent to the birds that end up there, but it, over the years at least we've talked periodically on this show about people who, for whatever reason, just don't learn enough about parrots before they adopt or, or God forbid, buy one, and then they shortly find that they can't really take it with the parrots and just some of the inherent behaviors, and so then they're looking to to find another home for that parrot and that's often goes to a sanctuary of one kind or another is that sure well a lot of the information that's available out there that um, that people find when they're researching is really um, pet trade oriented and, and geared towards um, selling the bird yeah um, so you know but um, these are long-lived animals with very complex social needs and um, you know I think Probably one of the greatest reasons why people relinquish their birds, you know, I mean, there are several, um, but, you know, but people age out, um, you know, you buy a parrot when you're 30, you don't realize when you're 70 or 80 that that animal is still going to be dependent on you. So, um, so this is what happens or, yeah. you know, other changes in, in the lives of humans. For sure. That's. That. Yeah, and it sounds like, I guess from what you are saying there a moment ago, that, that when people even do seek out information, they're probably getting skewed info because people are uh, that are providing some of the, the, the information that people might land on uh, is uh, aiming to sell birds, not say, hey, here's sure. the reality, here's how long they live, here's, here's how they sound, here's what they do. Yeah. So, so even if people are thinking they're researching it, they're probably getting uh, incomplete or distorted information. Yikes. That is absolutely true. Um, but one of the other aspects of um, of the trade in birds is the fact that the market demand for parrots as pets is driving um, extinction in the wild. As long as parrots are seen as pets and as caged birds, um, um, illegal or legal um, trapping and poaching um, is thriving. And um, about one third of the parrots of parrots um, on Earth are threatened or endangered directly because of the pet trade. Oh, wow! So it's it's a multi pronged crisis then, really. Um, yeah, it sure is. Yeah. So mainly, of course, I want to invite you on the show to see what I and listeners to the show 
could do to help you in the wake of the fire? Is it, are there any sorts of supplies or resources people can send, or is it mainly just monetary donations that will chiefly help you kind of rebound and rebuild from the fire? Yes, it's, it's funding. We need funding, um, you know, as for supplies, um, we are getting a lot of supplies. We, we don't have a lot of space to store these, um, these things at this time. Yeah. Um, we're looking at a complete rebuild, and we still have 300 parrots to take care of on site. So, um, you know, we, I think, you know, in the interim, the surviving part of our building is, um, you know, we'll be able to stay there, but we need to rebuild it. Um, the building is not safe. Um, there were, it was heavily damaged. Um, water damage after the fire yeah. during the fire so yeah so so the website is fosterparrots.com then that's right yeah, right. and then if you go there, there's a banner right at the top that basically, among other language, says here's where you could donate for the fire disaster relief fund. So, yeah, I think uh, obviously it's just a horrible, horrible situation. And, and yeah. as you say, there's still 300 birds there that you guys are still caring for, but there's a lot of work to be done. So, yeah, I just yeah. hope anybody hearing this that uh, um, is able to do anything to help out uh, with foster parrots can go to fosterparrots.com. And like I said, there's just a banner right at the top you just click on that and just send whatever you can do to help. So, um, Karen, anything else that we should know uh, related to that? No, you know, I don't know. I guess not. It's um, it's um, it's a heavy load. Um, yeah, um, we're traumatized. The I'm staff sure. and the volunteers. It's um, it's it's a it's a really difficult time right now. I'm, I don't think that um, any of us have um, felt tragedy on this level before. Yeah. Um, the losses, every single um, bird that we lost, um, 87 uh, birds, um, were, we knew them, we, we loved them, they, they were a part of our lives, and um, everybody was unique and special and valuable, and so this is very difficult for everybody at the sanctuary right now. Oh, gosh, well, we're, unfortunately, we're sort of reached the end of our, our show here, but I, I am so sorry once again, and again, it's fosterparrots.com is the website. And uh, please do whatever you can to, to help uh, in the wake of this uh, really uh, tough, tough tragedy. And like you say, the trauma for you and all your other uh, colleagues there at the sanctuary. So good luck, and we'll follow up with you in a bit and see if there's anything else we might do down the road to help. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thanks, Karen. Bye-bye. All right, we have just about reached the end of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Laura is up next after NPR News Headlines, and we'll be back next Wednesday with another show. Thanks. <laughs>